Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. All right, how we doing today? You made it. You made it to church on Daylight Saving Sunday. I feel like that's a really big deal considering we all lost an hour of sleep. So I read this story this week about Pat Sajak. He's been the host of the Wheel of Fortune since 1981. Over the last 41 years, he's met a lot of people. And this past week, on the show, there was a guy, as the contestants were introducing themselves and telling a little bit about themselves, he met a guy named Scott. And Scott began to tell this story about how when he was 12 years old, he was riding a bicycle, and he had on flip-flops. And while he was riding his bicycle, he fell off and somehow cut off a part of his toe, like the top part of his toe. And so he's laying there on the ground, and a car comes riding by, and there's two paramedics that are in the car, and they help Scott. And 30 years later, on national TV, he wanted to say thank you to those paramedics who helped him. Well, Pat Sajak looked at Scott as the crowd starts to kind of lightly applause, and he held up his hand. He said, that may have been the most pointless story ever told. And congratulations, Scott, you told it. And it was as cringeworthy as it sounds. And there were a lot of people that were really upset with Pat Sajak, especially in the Twitterverse, a lot of people calling for Pat Sajak to apologize to Scott. And, and I don't know whether or not Scott's story was absolutely pointless, but I do know that there are plenty of pointless things that you and I do, one of those being we just did it this morning. We gave up an hour of sleep for some myth called daylight savings. Uh, another thing that we do is maybe you do it too. You get out of your car, you hit the lock button, you hear it honk, and then you hit it like three more times to make sure it locked just in case the first honk didn't actually lock it. Or you go to the fridge because you want a snack, and you open the fridge, and you look... There's nothing there you want to eat, so you shut it. You walk to the pantry. There's nothing there you want to eat, so you go back to the fridge as though something else has magically appeared in your fridge, and there's still nothing that you want to eat. There's plenty of things that we do that are pointless. You probably sat in a meeting this week with some type of training for work that you might consider pointless. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I sat through science class every day saying this is absolutely pointless. No offense to any science teachers. I was confused. It was way over my head. I wasn't paying attention to begin with, and I was just ready to get it done. My guess is there's somebody that's sitting here today that's feeling like maybe this whole Jesus thing, this whole church scene might be kind of pointless. Maybe you're not making the connections. Maybe it's not important to you and you really don't see the importance and you're here for a number of reasons, maybe because somebody made you be here or maybe because they promised you lunch afterward if you would come. For whatever reason you're here, if that's you, if you're struggling to connect the importance of Christianity and the importance of Jesus in your life, listen, I am so glad you're here. We as a church family are glad that you're here and we're all on this journey together. 
So I don't know if you've ever read anything by C.S. Lewis. If you've ever watched the Chronicles of Narnia, those were movies based on his books, and they're phenomenal. It's a phenomenal book series. He wrote two really formative books, uh, books that have been really formative for me, Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce. Really encourage you to check some of those out. He has a lot of other great works, but he's got a line that I want us to think about this morning to kind of set the tone for what we're going to talk about today as we get back into the Gospel of John. He said, Christianity if false, is of absolutely no importance, but if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And if we're honest, in the United States of America, in 2022, in Western society, in in the advanced society that we live in, for a lot of people, Christianity has really just kind of become moderately important. And we know that because the vast majority of Christians don't regularly share their faith, don't consistently gather together for worship, don't regularly read their Bible, don't spend time in prayer. The vast majority of Christians don't give generously. And it's really become an attitude of indifference that's kind of plagued Christian society, plagued churches all over the nation. And I want us to think about what C.S. Lewis said, because he's absolutely right. If Jesus walked out of the tomb which we know the tomb was empty, if he walked out of the tomb, then the one thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. So we've been in a study in the Gospel of John, and we're in John chapter 5, and last week we started in John chapter 5, the first 18 verses where Jesus heals a man that had been paralyzed for the last 38 years, and he looks at the man, he says, do you want to be healed? Which it's like, what kind of question is that? Of course he wants to be healed. But we talked about how that question is really deeper than do you want to be healed? It's, are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to have your entire life changed and be made whole? And John makes this connection that he heals the man on the Sabbath, and then he tells him to take up his bed and walk. And by telling the man to take up his bed and walk, Jesus is actually telling the man to break the local laws. It was against Sabbath law to carry your bed. And so he knows by telling the man to do that, he's actually telling him to break the law. But that bed was a symbol of his healing. And what was the Sabbath for? The Sabbath was to bring about healing for an individual to be restored and to be made whole after a really long week. And what better way to celebrate somebody being made whole than carrying the bed that used to symbolize that man's disability? And Jesus gets into this clash with the religious leaders because they can't look past their own traditions. They can't look past their own man-made laws. They don't understand that the Sabbath was originally a gift and they've turned it into a burden. And in their conversation, they become irate over something that Jesus says. And John tells us that the reason why they become irate is because Jesus was trying to make himself equal with God. And so the conversation continues. This morning we're going to pick up in verse 19 and look at the next couple of verses. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And if we're honest, we're all guilty of inventing our own view of Jesus. We all have a different view of Jesus. Maybe your view of Jesus is loving Jesus. Everything that Jesus does is love, and he loves everything about you and everything that you do. Others of us have this view of judging Jesus, that he's got this furrowed brow, and he's looking down on us. Other people have a revelation-type view of Jesus, where he's riding on a white horse, and he's got a flaming sword coming out of his mouth. He's just slaying people all over the place. It's a really weird apocalyptic image. 
language, but those that really love Revelation, that's their view of Jesus. Others have the view of Jesus, like in the children's Bible, the Jesus that loves the little children. Uh, my favorite, Caucasian Jesus with blonde hair, even though he lives in the Middle East. Because you see so many Caucasian blonde-haired people who are from the Middle East. Or maybe your v- vision of Jesus is movie Jesus. He's perfectly tan. He's got eccentric jawlines. I mean, he's just beautiful, right? We all have a different view of Jesus. In fact, we even vocalize our view of Jesus. We say things like, you know, I don't think Jesus really cares about that. Or, I don't, I don't think Jesus would do that. Can I just be honest with you? It doesn't matter what you think Jesus would do. It really doesn't. I know it's kind of harsh to hear, but we really need to stop thinking on behalf of Jesus. He told us exactly what he came to do. And sometimes we try to clean up some of his messages because some of his teachings are harsh and some of his actions are abnormal and we don't know what to do with it. you got to take it all. Stop trying to turn Jesus into your own image. Jesus is very clear about who he is. He is the representation of God in the flesh. He said, whatever you see the Father doing, that is what the Son does. When Jesus is here on this earth, he is taking his orders from God. And so then John says something in verse 20 that I find so fascinating. He said, he records Jesus saying, for the Father loves the Son and shows him doing, uh, shows all the things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he's going to show to him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Now, we said it at the beginning of this series, and I want to say it again, because we've been in John for several weeks now, and we've got a little ways to go. John is not writing for us a chronological version of the facts of what Jesus did. He is very specific, and he has a goal in mind for the readers, for you and I who are reading this gospel. He wants us to believe. He wants us to believe in Jesus, and he has crafted these stories. If you can imagine this giant felt board, if you grew up in old school churches of Christ, and you had a preacher that used the felt board. Did that happen here? Please tell me it did. Felt board. I love felt board sermons. I had a preacher growing up that did felt board sermons, and it was awesome. It was the old school PowerPoint where instead of a screen, you had this giant fabric, and you just slap stuff on there, and it was a work of art. And you can imagine John with this felt board and he's taking all these narratives and he's slapping them into place and he says, no, no, I want to move this around and and I want Nicodemus by the Samaritan woman and I want the official son by the... by the man that was a a paralytic. And then right after that, I want the bread of life uh, miracle and the bread of life discourse. And in between there, I'm going to talk about the miracle of him walking on water. If you could just imagine John moving things around and all around it is the word believe because that's what he wants you to do. Everything that John is writing is for you and I to believe, to surrender our trust and turn our allegiance over to Jesus. But the other thing he wants us to do is he wants us to just break out in spontaneous worship. As we're reading this story of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, he wants our hearts to just be drawn into him and break out into worship. In fact, Jesus said himself, when you look at all these different things, it's so that you can just marvel. Now, I'm really guilty of overusing a phrase that I really shouldn't. I should reserve it for other times. And that phrase is, this is awesome, or that was awesome. 
And most of the time that I use that phrase, it's not truly awesome. It was just really neat, but it just kind of flows off the tongue and it makes it sound better than it actually was. It, but really, when you think about the word awesome, it's something that is filled with awe. It should drop you to your knees. It should make your jaw hit the ground. It's a, it's a moment that doesn't happen that often. It's something so profound, so life-changing, that it leaves you completely different. John wants us to know that there are three aspects of Jesus' authority that should drop us to our knees and cause our hearts to just break out in worship. And there may be three you've never considered or maybe three, you've never really found all that worshipful, at least probably one of them. The first one that he wants us to consider, that he wants us to marvel at and worship in, is this idea of this loving, intimate relationship between the Father and Son. This is what is going to get Jesus hung on the cross, because what Jesus is claiming is a privilege that is unique. You see, the Israelites at that time, they had different categories for God and different ways that he worked. And they had a category for God the Father, God the Creator. They had a category for God the Holy Spirit, because you meet the Holy Spirit on, in the second sentence of the Bible. They had a category for God having sons. That was not a different thought for them. They understood that the angelic beings were God's sons, because it's called the sons of God. They understood that God's creation, that Israel was God's son. They even had a category based on Psalm number two, that the king over Israel was considered a son of God, not in some divine kind of way, just a chosen representative of God. What they did not have a category for is what Jesus is claiming when he refers to God as his father. Maybe you're like me, and when you spend time in prayer, you open up your prayers by saying, Father. Maybe that's something that you do. We all have a different way of praying. Some people are God people. Some people are KJV version kind of prayers. I like to begin mine with Father. If we were to live in the time of Jesus, we would probably get slapped in the mouth and kicked out of the synagogue or the temple because that was considered blasphemy. You didn't call God your Father. In fact, their images of God were keep him at a distance. If you remember in your minds from reading in the book of Exodus when God leads Israel to Mount Sinai, around Mount Sinai there's lightning, there's thunder, there's earthquakes, and that says the presence of God is being experienced. And, and the people say, hey, we'll stay over here, Moses. You go up there and you intercede on our behalf. We're going to stay back because we don't want to get that close to God because something bad might happen. When in reality, God was inviting them to be near to him. But over time, that thought had just become more and more pervasive, where they even got to the point that they wouldn't even fully spell out the name of God. In fact, you've heard me say and others say the name Yahweh, and Yahweh is probably our best uh, idea of how you actually pronounce that word, because even when they would write it in their Bible, in your Bible, it might be Lord with capital L and then like a smaller capital O-R-D, that's where the name of God, the covenant name of God appears. And we say Lord because we think it might be Yahweh, but we're really not sure because when they would write it, they would exclude the vowels just to make sure they weren't taking God's name in vain, going to that extra degree to keep God revered and holy, which is a great thing. But God is trying to invite his people near. In the first three chapters of your Bible, God is trying to invite his children near. In the last two chapters of your Bible, God is inviting his children back near. But somewhere in between, we came up with this idea that God wants to keep us at an arm's length, that we can't get too close to him. And what Jesus is saying is he's calling God Father because he's trying to let us know that not only does he have a unique 
close relationship with the Father, but you and I can as well. Paul picked up on this idea in Romans chapter 8. Paul said, the Holy Spirit that you received doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but the Spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him, by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So when you're baptized into Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happens in that moment is your relationship with God completely changes. The reason why we can call God Father, the reason why we can begin our prayers with Father and we're not considered blasphemers is because of the work of Christ. Jesus, through his relationship with God, is inviting us to draw near to God. Think about how profound this is, that you can call God by such a tender name as Abba Father. If that doesn't drop you to your knees, check your pulse. You have the creator of the universe on your speed dial. He is inviting you into his presence. This is so foreign to every other religion that has ever been and that is currently on the planet. This is why Christianity is so unique, is that God is inviting us near. He is inviting us into his presence and he's saying share with me your burdens tell me about what's going on in your life lean into me and trust in me not only the great creator of all the earth but as your intimate loving heavenly father man what a thought that God wants us to be so close to him that we have this comfort level say Abba father I'm in need Jesus wants us to know that thought should cause us to just break out in worship. And so the next time you pray and you begin your prayer with Father, you might just want to stop right there and let your heart just kind of settle in that idea of, wow, I can actually refer to God as a Father. Man, what a thought. The second thing that Jesus wants us to marvel at is that Jesus is the giver of life. We're going to get there in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus is going to grant life to a person who had died three days before. John opens up his gospel by saying, in him, in Jesus, was life. It's a theme that runs all throughout his gospel. In chapter 3, he has this conversation with Nicodemus, and he's talking about being born again, life being granted again to an individual, and that is coming through entering the kingdom of God and being born again through water and the Spirit. And what John is trying to communicate to us through this gospel is this theme that Jesus is the giver of life. In the previous story that we looked at last week, he grants life to a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, whose life had been robbed from him because of all the things he couldn't do, and now he had been restored. At the very end of chapter 4, there's a, a man, an official, whose son, whose child is on its deathbed, and he's desperate, and he comes to Jesus, and he begs, please heal my, son, please heal my child. And Jesus says, oh, if I heal him, you're not going to believe. And he's like, yes, please heal my child. And Jesus, from where he is, grants life back to that child. He didn't have to be in his presence. He just spoke the word and gave life. I can give a lot of different things to my kids. I can give them gifts. Sometimes I feel like a mixture of Oprah and an ATM of handing out cash. You get cash, and you get cash, and you get cash. I can give them my time. I can give them my affection. I can give them my energy and my focus. The one thing I can't give them is life. I can't grant life to them or back to them. That is only 
a gift that Jesus can give. And the irony of the Bible is that the way that we receive life is through surrendering the one that we have. In the other Gospels, Jesus would say things like, you know, if you want to truly live, you need to give up your life. If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. In case you didn't know, a cross is not a place you go to find life, but a place you go to experience death. And then the Apostle Paul takes all of those ideas and in Romans chapter 6 creates this beautiful passage of Scripture where he describes this moment where spiritually we die, but we're also raised again. And it's a really quick moment that Paul describes as this act of baptism where we're lowered into the water and we die to our sins. We're spiritually crucified there in the water and we're buried underneath that water and then we're raised to walk in newness of life. And that life is granted by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the only one that can give life. This is one of the things that he said that sped up the process of him getting hung on a cross. He knew exactly what was going to happen the moment he went to that tomb where his friend Lazarus was laying, the moment he shouted out, Lazarus, come out, the moment he began to give life to other people. That was the moment that was going to quicken the process of his life on earth coming to an end. And it was by him dying that he experienced new life. And it's through his death and our spiritual death, that we experience new life as well. Jesus wants to give you life today if you've never experienced it. And it's not just today, but it's every day. Because we're renewed on a daily basis. And it's this beautiful gift that every time we wake up and open our eyes, a miracle has happened. Because we've been granted another day of life to live on this earth and to enjoy this close relationship with our Heavenly Father. The last one, maybe you've never thought about, that Jesus wants you to worship in, is the fact that Jesus will judge the world. There are days that I remember above others because they were really important moments in my life. Some of the best days of my life were the day I was baptized, the day I got married, the day both of my girls were born. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but I promise you this was a really big highlight in my life. It's a day that I'll never forget. It was the day that I came home and I saw that letter that I got summoned for jury duty. I'm not kidding. I was so excited to finally get summoned for jury duty. When, I, when we lived in Prattville, I worked with a preacher there, and I kid you not, in the two and a half years we lived there, he got summoned for jury duty like three times. And every time he's like, oh, I got summoned for jury duty. And I'm like, I wish I could get summoned for jury duty. When I was in high school and college, I read all the John Grisham novels. I had this idea of what it was going to be like to be in a courtroom. I loved the show Law and Order. I couldn't wait to be there and to be on that jury panel and to be sequestered and to have this major decision placed upon mine and 11 other individuals' shoulders. It was going to be a dream that I could live out. And so when that card came, Haley knew it was better than my birthday. And so I was sitting there and I was so excited. So I go down to the courthouse on day one and they said, all right, come back tomorrow. Okay. I take another book and I sit there all day long and they don't pick me. I'm like, Wednesday's the day. I go back on Wednesday. This is going to be the day I'm going to get it, going to get it put on a jury. I don't care how insignificant the case is. I just want to be in the courtroom. And they send me home. You don't have to come back. Here's your little per diem that didn't even pay for my gas. I was so disappointed. Truly disappointed. About a year or two later, that little card showed up in my mailbox again. And I was very conflicted. 
It was August 2020. Do you remember what was going on in August 2020? That whole pandemic thing? And I was teaching school part-time, and I had a lot of extra responsibilities placed on my shoulders. And I knew I did not have the time to devote to being a good juror, if they were even going to pick me. Really, I didn't have the time to sit at the courthouse three to four days of that week for the chance of them not picking me. And all the things that were going to get put on the back burner as a result. And so I sat in there. And I remember the first time I did jury duty, this long line of people were there and they all stood before the judge giving him reasons and excuses why they could not serve. And I'm like, shame, bad citizens. I would judge and I would, I would volunteer in a heartbeat. And now I'm in this long line of people who've got an excuse of why I can't serve in jury duty. And finally, I make my way up to the judge. And I just remember standing in front of this judge and there was a little bit of fear in my heart because of the position and the authority that this man held. And I wasn't even the one in trouble. I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I would not want to be sitting, you know, on the other side waiting to stand in front of the judge to hear my sentencing or to hear that verdict of guilty or not guilty. I just remember that feeling of all that I had for the judge and for the position that he held and for the position that all other judges hold. It was, it was truly a humbling moment as I laid out my excuses as to why. And I told him, I was like, I am really sorry. And I have been looking forward to being called for jury duty, which probably meant I would immediately get excluded because they, how weird can you be that you want to get called for jury duty? That's like number one reason they're going to kick you out and not pick you. And I remember telling the, the judge, and he said, I understand, I appreciate you being willing to serve. Don't worry, we're going to put you on a list, and we're going to call you back. I was like, please do. I can't wait, okay? And I left. I just remember that feeling of how much I respected the judge's authority and truly kind of fear that was in my heart standing in front of that bench. But, you know, I have another, I have a good friend who's also a judge, And I don't experience that kind of fear. In fact, I experience a closeness and a fondness and a a nice friendship there. And I've never been in his courtroom, but if I was, I wouldn't experience that kind of fear. I would probably be looking for any opportunity to just blurt out the phrase, you can't handle the truth. I, I don't know how I would work that out, but that's what I would be waiting on. But even standing in front of my friend's bench, while I would have a respect for his authority... I don't know that terror or fear would be what I would describe in my heart unless I guess I was in trouble for something. Because the relationship with the judge changes everything. What John wants you to marvel at is that Jesus is the judge of all life. In fact, John says that God has given all judgment to the Son. Paul picked, the Apostle Paul picked up on this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he said, we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Can I just be honest with you? For a long time I read that verse and it scared me. I mean, absolutely scared me. I can't imagine standing in front of the judgment seat of Christ and receiving the things that I have done in the body, giving an account for what I have done in this life. That is a terrifying thought. Except in verses 6 and 8, Paul says, have confidence. Be of courage. Have courage. One day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it occurred to me, your amount of fear is based on your relationship to the judge. If you have a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ, 
There's absolutely nothing to fear when you read 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. There's absolutely nothing to fear on that day that you actually stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because what will happen on that day is when you are giving an account for the things done in the body, what will happen is the blood of Jesus is going to cover your life and your sins. And you're not going to give an account for what you have done in the body as much as Jesus is going to give an account for what he has done in your life because his righteousness will become your righteousness. And there is absolutely nothing to fear. Now, if you read that verse and there is fear in your heart, it might be because you need to question your relationship with the judge. If you read this verse and you say, I don't want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, It might be because your relationship with the judge is not good. It's not where it needs to be. But the beauty is today is the day that you can change that. Today is the day that you can begin a new relationship with Christ. You can be baptized and receive life, and Jesus will freely grant you life. And because of his relationship with God, he will change your relationship with God. And now you can have this close, intimate relationship with a God of all creation, who is not only the creator and sustainer of all things, but is your heavenly father. You can be an inheritor for what Jesus says we will experience in this new life that he has gone to prepare for us. You can experience all of that today. And so if this verse shakes fear into your core, today you need to change your relationship with the judge. Because if you're close with the judge, there is absolutely nothing to fear. And so you can do like Paul says, and you can stand with confidence and courage, not with arrogance, but with confidence, not in yourself, but in Jesus and what he's done for you. Here's what I want you to take away. Based on the authority of Jesus, following Christ cannot be this add-on to your life. It can't just be this addition that you make that, yeah, I'll just, I'll start following Christ. I'll just add it into everything that I'm doing. Jesus will not take second place. I would even say he won't even take first place because if there's a first place, there's a second place and a third place, and that means there's a competition. And Jesus is not in the business of competing for your heart because he deserves it all. And so rather you need to change the way that you view life instead of saying Jesus is first in my life, it just needs to be Jesus is my life. And everything that I do revolves around him because he is the center of my universe. And if it's pulling me away from him, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to change it. I'm going to make some changes. He can't be an add-on. He can't just be an addition to your life. Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If it's not true, it is of absolutely no importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So today... I want to challenge you to make a decision. Do you believe? Will you trust in Christ? Will you surrender your life to him? And if so, are you ready to be baptized into Christ today to begin your new walk with him? If you've come to this realization that maybe Christianity has just been kind of moderately important, indifference has been the attitude that's pervaded your spirit and your life and you want to surrender that to him and you want to make changes in your life. We'd love to pray for you if you want us to do that publicly. If you want to have a moment where you are, just surrender that to him and marvel in the fact that he wants you to have a close, intimate relationship with God and he will judge you, but it'll be based on his goodness and not yours. And you just need to worship in that and recommit your life to him. We'd love to encourage you to do that. If you want to talk with one of our shepherds, they'll be up front and in the back. They'd love to pray over you and encourage you today there's something on your heart, don't leave here with that on your heart. Let it be known today. Confess it before God 
and allow us to encourage you in whatever way that we can as we stand and sing.